So this morning we're going to uh, call our attention to two passages from the scripture, one from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 61 and the second from Luke chapter 4. Do invite you to turn there, swipe there, or join us looking at the screens as the scriptures will be there. And once I've finished reading, we're going to just pause for a moment. And if you've brought with you any needs that you want to lift up before the Lord, we'll have space for that there. The passage from Isaiah is a bit lengthy uh, this weekend. And as I read it, we're not just reading the words of some dusty ancient prophet, but we're reading uh, words that are life for us. So as I read and as you read along with me, let's look for ways that God might be quietly speaking to each one of us. Isaiah chapter 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness all those prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you, you will be called priests of the Lord. And you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people blessed by the Lord. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Luke chapter 4. Verse 14. 
Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I love Christmas movies. I've got a whole list that I like to watch each year, one of which is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in the Land of Misfit Toys. So good. Rudolph and his red nose. It's weird, it's awkward, it shines so bright, doesn't get to play in the reindeer games. People make fun of him. Then, of course, there's Hermie. Santa's elf who doesn't want to make toys. He wants to be a dentist. Yukon Cornelius, a mining prospector that can't seem to find anything. And the abominable snowman who Yukon Cornelius calls the bumble. And you know what bumbles do? They bounce. What I love about this story, this film, is that while it is filled with struggle, it is also redemptive. There's reconciliation in the end of it all. We love those kind of stories. We love redemption stories. We even get a little teary-eyed. Hermie got to be a dentist. Rudolph gets to lead Santa's sleigh, and even the bumble is redeemed and gets to place the star on top of Santa's Christmas tree. When we think about stories of redemption, there's something within the human heart that begins to pulsate because it just feels right. Like this is how it's supposed to be. It's almost as if God has hardwired each one of us to understand life, to find meaning, and make sense of it all through the stories of redemption and reconciliation. The prophet Isaiah, whom we read a moment ago, speaks in chapter 61 to a group of people who are in desperate need of redemption, who long for reconciliation. Isaiah describes this group of people as brokenhearted, captive, afflicted, living in dire poverty. 
And so as Isaiah begins to speak, he begins with two characteristics that embody the essence of who God is. Goodness and faithfulness. The prophecy concludes by challenging us to respond to God's goodness and faithfulness with with rejoicing. See, Isaiah's prophecy begins in verse 1 and verse 2 by speaking of one who will arrive and bring God's good news. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. The people of Israel, as they waited for the Messiah, were desperate for good news. From the very last words of the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament to the very first words of the Gospel of Matthew, 400 years have passed in which God was seemingly silent. No word, no prophecy, no miracles, nothing. All that God's people had were the ancient words of the prophets. God's people were waiting for a Messiah to come and save them from their own brokenheartedness, captivity, affliction, and poverty. Not only was their their city ruined, but their faith was ruined as they waited and waited and waited. I wonder if you've ever had a moment in which you think, maybe not out loud, but in the quiet moment of your heart is, is all this even worth it anymore? This faith stuff. And yet the constant companion of the human experience is a tension and a strain. On the one hand of the tension and the strain, I think we can all admit if we were honest that life is is actually really good. Very few of us have anything to complain about. When I woke up this morning, my refrigerator was overflowing. Things were falling out. I flipped a switch, I had electricity, I turned a knob, I had hot water. My health is pretty good, and when it's not, I have access to some of the greatest health care in the world. I turned on my vehicle, it started, the heater turned on, and I listened to Hamilton as I drove to church. Yesterday, it snowed and it stuck so good, I got to shovel, I love it. I have very little to complain about. And then on the other end of the tension, things aren't so good. Because there is struggle, there is strain, and it's hard. And, and it, seems like, it seems like everybody's angry all of a sudden. I was driving home Friday night. I dropped my son off at his gym. He's really into CrossFit right now. And strapped him off. I'm driving home on Highway 60. And I'm at a stoplight. And I pull up next to this guy. And we're driving. And we're both going about the same speed. And I don't know if I annoyed him or what. I'm not quite sure what I did. But as we're driving down Highway 60, he rolled down his window and threw something at my car while we're driving. I'm like, what is that? He's yelling at me. I don't even know what I did. 
Now, what I wanted to do in response, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you. Why is everyone so angry? It doesn't take long to look around these days and notice that there are things that are in ruins, much like the lives of those ancient Israelites that the prophet Isaiah was speaking to. Economies are in ruins, jobs, marriages, lives, childhoods, education, relationships. After 400 years of waiting, Jesus arrives, steps into the synagogue, unrolls the prophet Isaiah, reads the words of the scroll, hands it back, and he says, the one that you've been waiting for, I'm him. I've arrived, I am here. And the word that is used to describe Jesus' mission and message is the word good. Now the word good gets used a lot, sometimes overused. I may walk out into the lobby today, walk up to you, shake your hand and say, how's it going? And you will probably say, well, things are good. Maybe you'll walk over and order yourself a latte. You'll take that first sip and say, oh, it's so good. Or you'll talk to a friend of yours this week who missed church and they'll say to you, hey, how was church this week? And you'll say, oh, well, the worship was good. For those of us who are parents, we often have to bribe our children to be good. When my kids were little, we would say to them when we would go to the grocery store, now if you're good, at the end maybe we'll buy you a candy. Or my wife takes me to the mall and she says, if you're good, I'll buy you a Starbucks when it's over. (laughs) Over the years, my, my daughter has had several young men that have been interested in her, and when I meet them for the first time, I'm warned, you better be good. Because the first time I wasn't. The word good is found over 700 times in the Bible, but it's used in a very different way than we use it. The word good in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language is a multi-layered word. It's a, a robust word. It's a rich word. It, it means all kinds of things. It means beauty and justice and grace and compassion and kindness and treating people well and service to others and beauty. All these things make up the word good. It's why goodness is used to describe God himself. And it's really easy for me to appreciate God's goodness when things are, well, good. The prophecy Isaiah came at a time when things were not good. Matter of fact, they were horrible. And yet the beginning words of this prophet were, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. I suppose the... The people of Israel, as they waited for God in the midst of their brokenheartedness, poverty, and struggle, asked the question, at least I would ask the question, if God is so good, then why is this happening? I mean, it really is the question of religion. If it's so good, then why? We've all asked it. I had a conversation just last week with a guy, and he asked me, he said, Mike, what's the hardest part about being a pastor for you. 
And as I thought about that question, the response I gave him was this. The hardest part for me is that when someone asks me, Pastor Mike, why did this happen? And I don't have a good answer. That's the hardest thing for me. As you can imagine, I get asked that question a lot. You know, I've even asked that question myself a few times. The most honest response I can give is, well, it, it happened because it happened. It happened because people do tor- terrible things. It happened because our bodies are imperfect. It happened because we live in a world that is full of sin and it affects us directly or indirectly. Because most of the time I can't really see the why, which is so frustrating because I like things to make sense. Like if I can just know why, then I'm, I'm okay. But what I do know is this, for certain, that God can and take, God can and does take that which is bad and awful and even evil, and he can shape it into that which is good. Because that's who he is. God sees the world from a very different angle than I see the world. God stands outside of time. And because I see things from such a very limited angle, I don't always understand. Now, when we read the Bible, we get to see angles of the story that the characters themselves did not get to see. For instance, take the story of Job in the Old Testament. The story of Job was the story of a guy who had every horrible thing that you can think of happened to him in one moment. And he ended up asking God, why? Now, he didn't know the end of the story. I mean, you and, you and I do. But when I read that in stories like it, what I choose to understand is that goodness is the storyline of the kingdom of God. The first name that God gave to his creation was the name Good. And God looked over all that he had made and he said it was very good. Goodness is used to describe God's presence. In the book of Exodus, Moses says to God, God, I I, I need to see your glory. I'm irritated with your people. I'm sick of leading them. God, I just need a moment in which I can see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow my goodness to pass in front of you. And because of that, because the storyline of the kingdom of God is goodness, because God's original name for this world is good, and because God's very essence is good, then you and I, we become representation and agents of God's goodness in the world. I mean, that's the vision I have for my life, that I can simply be God's goodness in the world. I hope that's the vision of our church, because there's already a lot of bad. We don't need any more bad. Bad is everywhere, and if you notice, bad sells. It's why when you turn on whatever your favorite news channel is, it's always bad news, because bad news seems to make a lot of money. If news can keep you angry or scared, someone's getting rich. It's why when you surf the internet, so many of the articles have startling titles because every time you click, someone makes money. 
Bad is like catnip in the soul. Like we can't, we can't resist it. It's why we love juicy gossip so much. Like if we can hear about someone else's bad, then maybe we'll feel better about ourselves. And when we perpetuate that story, we kind of feel good. Now, now of course, none of us here would gossip because we're all Christians. We just offer prayer requests. <laughs> when I share others' bad news or see other people's bad news, neurons start to fire in my brain. And I think, well, at least that's not me. There's something distortedly pleasurable about it. Like, I love M&M's. Costco. This will last about two days. For some reason, peanut M&M's are one of those items that I can't just eat one. It's, I can eat one Lay's potato chip. That headlines, but M&M's, I can't stop. Once I get going, I just eat and eat and eat. And as I'm eating, I know that there are neurons firing in the pleasure center of my brain that says, this is good, keep going. (laughs) And I'll keep going and I, I can eat half this thing, no problem in one sitting. But I know they're bad for me. And I know that if I eat half of the container, later, I'll be sick. But that doesn't stop me. It's the same thing with, with bad news. We just keep going and going and going or, or gossip sharing. We just keep going and going because we can't help ourselves because it does something to us. Oh, bad news. Oh my gosh. Did you, did you hear what Paul Robertson did this week? Oh, it's so good. I just can't wait. <laughs> That's what bad news does. as long as it's not our bad news. We get so worked up about so many things that don't even matter. Do you remember in 2015, there is an event that happened that I'll simply call the Great Starbucks Red Cup Controversy. If you're not familiar with that, in 2015... At Christmas time, Starbucks produced a cup that was red. There was no markings on it, no holly, no wreaths, no Christmas anything. And someone got really upset about that, started a campaign on the internet because Starbucks is bad and now they hate Christmas. And people were boycotting Starbucks because of the red cup. And I thought to myself, self... Isn't there more good to do in the world than fight about a cup that was produced by a company that never claimed to be Christian in the first place? If you take away anything from this weekend, I want you to take away this one sentence, write it down, memorize it. It's more important to be good than it is to be right. Because you can be right and not be good. Jesus said this. If someone smacks you in the face, turn the other cheek. Now what's interesting about that statement is the law in the Old Testament has a 
law of retribution that says something along the lines that I'm summarizing. If someone smacks you or attacks you or whatever, you have the right to retaliate. That's your right. That is the right thing to do according to the Old Testament. But according to Jesus, while it may be the right thing to do, it's not the good thing to do. So if someone smacks you in the face, turn the other cheek. When I choose goodness as defined in the scripture, I'm actually changing the environment and the atmosphere of my immediate world. Because listen, I know a whole lot of people who are really right about a lot of things and what they say and what they believe, but as people, they are horrible and in some cases evil and abusive. We live in a period of world history in which everyone thinks they're right. And everyone has evidence and experts to prove that they are right. And for me, it's really hard to sort through because like this group of people, they have their experts and they have their evidence and their research. And then there's this group of people that have their their experts and their evidence and their research. I'm like, oh, well, they make a good point. No, they make a good point. They make a good point. And I have a hard time like rallying around any of it because I don't know who to believe. And quite frankly, we tend to radiate towards those things that confirm what it is we already hold true. And so instead, I'm choosing to be good instead of having to be right. I'm choosing kindness and compassion. I'm choosing truth with empathy. I'm choosing to see and create something beautiful even out of the bad and the evil. I'm choosing to encourage and listen to treat others well because God in his essence is good and I choose to represent that. Isaiah also continues in his prophecy by reminding us that God is also faithful to his people. The prophet writes, in my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Faithfulness is an expression of God's goodness. It finds its fullest fulfillment in Jesus. On Christmas Day, Goodness and faithfulness was born. On Christmas, God fulfilled his promise to be good to you and faithful to you. 25 years ago, I stood at an altar and I made two promises to my wife. And only two. The two I made were, I will be faithful and I will be good to you. Those are the only two things I could promise because I could not promise bad things wouldn't happen. I could not promise that we wouldn't struggle. I could not promise that on occasion I wouldn't be a jerk. I could not promise that we would be wealthy. I'm going into the ministry. But there were two things I could promise. Rebecca, I promise to be faithful to you. And for 25 years, I've been 100% faithful to my wife. And I also promised to be good to her. And most of the time, that's true. (laughs) God's two promises to you. My goodness will be a part of your life and I will be faithful to you and his promises can be trusted. 
The challenge that we have is when we hold God accountable for things he never promised. He did not think, he did not promise things would be perfect. He did not even promise to explain everything. His only promise is only covenant with us. The word covenant is a very religious word, one we don't use very often. A covenant was, was, was a promise that was made that was so, so unreversible that someone who broke a covenant according to the Old Testament should be put to death. That's how binding and serious a covenant was. And God covenanted with us that he would be good and faithful. And our response to God's goodness and faithfulness can be found in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I delight greatly in the Lord and my soul rejoices in my God. Both of which are choices. Not I delight greatly and rejoice in all that's happening around me. No, no, no. I delight greatly in the Lord and my soul rejoices in him. And my motivation, my motivation kind of surrounds this word found in Isaiah's prophecy. It's the word instead. Because what we hear is that that God chooses to bestow on us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of despair. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance which is in heaven. See, God's goodness and God's faithfulness, they challenge me. They motivate me. As our band comes back, our worship team comes to lead us in a final song, I want to offer a few challenges for this week as we respond to the prophet Isaiah. First is, if you've never watched Rudolph and the Island of Misfit Toys... That's next step number one. Next step number two. Get a piece of paper, a sticky note, type it on your computer. These three simple phrases. God is good. God is faithful. And I will rejoice. And put it all over your house, put it in your car. Remind yourself of the covenant that he made with you. And finally, this week, When you're tempted in the midst of tension to be right, choose instead to be good.